Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. The Need to Know podcast is back, and we are joined today by Bradley Jardin, who is a global fellow at the Wilson Center within our Kissinger Institute on China, U.S., and he is also director of research at the Oxus Society. Uh, so Bradley has recently finished a report called The Great Wall of Steel, which looks at China's repression of the Uyghurs, uh, the, the Uyghur minority, which uh, I think a lot of folks know about the issue of the Uyghur uh, minority. But often we know kind of what's going on within China. Uh, we've seen news reports about what's going on within Xinjiang province. Bradley's work takes this a little bit further. Um, so Bradley, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's good to be here. And as I was saying, you know, your this report it 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 digs a little deeper into the Chinese repression of the Uyghurs, it, it, how how the the scope of this. But I think before we go into that, why don't you get us started really with just ground some grounding truth on who are the Uyghurs, and let's let's get that started first, and and sort of where what role they play here within this global community. Um, so the Uyghurs are a Turkic minority. They share a lot of ethnic and linguistic traits with their neighbors in the post-Soviet uh, Central Asian republics, places like Kazakhstan, um, where there are actually a large number of ethnic Kazakhs and ethnic Kyrgyz as well, who are other ethnic minorities within the what's today within China called the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Historically, it was often known as East Turkestan and um, again had these very civilized sophisticated civilizational links um, with the region as a whole, um, with Central Asia, um, before and after its um, annexation within what was then the Russian Empire, and then afterward the Soviet Union. A lot of people have been hearing more since 2017, especially about the situation of um, the Uyghurs within Xinjiang. Um, but also important to emphasize that, that this repression that was intensifying since 2017 does encompass Kazakhs and Kyrgyz as well, which has had a big impact on the foreign policies of Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, which have had to navigate popular um, unrest and discontent as a lot of their members and relatives and ethnic um, kin have been swept up into these re-education centers. Re-education centers are part of a Chinese uh, program which they refer to for the government does as de-extremification. They believe that they're facing a separatist or even international global terrorist threat within the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. But really what we've seen is, is a huge sweeping shift in basic cultural norms which have now been criminalized. Things like owning a Quran, growing your beard long, um, are now can have you sent to one of these re-education facilities. And it's believed that there are some 1.8 million Uyghurs who have been swept up into these facilities so far. 
What's been changing in recent years is there's been a discussion of late um, of the winding down of the camps themselves. Um, the Chinese government refers to people who've left the camps as having graduated from these um, these programs. Um, they're essentially um, trying to indoctrinate um, Uyghurs um, within Chinese party discourse um, and building and fostering loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party. What's really been happening is that although there has been a descaling with some of the camps, a lot of Uyghurs have instead found themselves swept up within the traditional prison system in Xinjiang. There was actually a large leak um, just the other week, which shows the sheer scale of this in some counties across Xinjiang, where um, it was documented that one in 25 Uyghurs had been imprisoned um, in one of these, these towns, which is the highest incarceration rate in the world. Um, so the program um, of interning Uyghurs, Muslims within Xinjiang is is definitely still ongoing, um, and it's far from far from over. So I, I, you, you mentioned you know owning a Quran, keeping your beard long. Obviously, these are not only a a Turkic minority, but they're also predominantly Muslim. Am I correct on that? Yeah, that's right. And I am also remembering, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, that they they feel like they face a threat from within, perhaps even a, a terrorist threat. Is there any indication that there's been any uh, connection with some of the Central Asian uh, terrorist groups with Al Qaeda or those that are in Afghanistan or Taliban or, or any, any any association with any of those? What? Sure. Yeah. Let's let's address each of those. First of all. You know, when we talk about the growing of the beards and, and all these traditional Islamic um, practices, it's important to note the scale of what China is doing. So it's not only they'll frame it as de-extremification or targeting of radical Islamic elements within Uyghur society. But activists will note that it's more the targeting of Uyghurs as a distinct culture. And there have even been cases of Uyghur Christians um, who've now fled the United States. We've talked about their experience within the camps. So these are some of them are Christian minorities, and a large number of them are, are um, even atheists, right? A lot of the people who've been detained in Xinjiang are actually lifelong members of the Chinese Communist Party, people who um, took a moderate approach or tried to work within the system. Some of them have found themselves within camps. So it's not even just targeting of Uyghurs who happen to be religious, um, particularly. So that's the first thing I would say. Second, as for links, of course, there is some violence um, and violent incidents that take place within Xinjiang. And those were certainly intensifying um, after 2013. We saw a lot of um, increased violence. A lot of this violence, though, is localized. There's Although China often points to conflicts in Syria and the Middle East and claims that there are international networks operating within Xinjiang and coordinating these attacks. Little evidence has been prevented of an international dimension. It looks much like this is localized violence. Um, incidents in which security officials have intimidated guests at a wedding, for example, and in response, um, attendees have had altercations with police which turned violent over time. A lot of it is just at the intensified security environment, the localized tensions that this is causing, and a larger product, which is China adopts a model of settler colonial development, essentially moving in large numbers of ethnic Han into 
um, Uyghur, Uyghur predominant regions to change the demographic balance. This often leads to Uyghurs not being fully incorporated within the local political economy. They're often marginalized. They're facing essentially what we talk about in the West of gentrification. You're seeing gentrification on an epic scale across all of Xinjiang and the economic and political marginalization this causes. And often it creates local flare-ups of violence. But this is not synonymous with terrorist incidents, the attacking of civilians. Often it's security services who are attacked. But of course, there have been some attacks, such as the tragic events in Yunnan province in China in 2014, the Kunmin massacre. Um, but this is all to say that there is, of course, unrest in Xinjiang, but the Chinese government is packaging it in the wrong way. It's using the framework of the language of the war on terror when really it should be finding ways to better integrate an ethnic minority within China's um, growing economy. Now, in addition, there have been uh, small scale groups such as the East Turkestan Islamic Movement who were long active in Afghanistan and then later Pakistan. This group rebranded around 2006 as the Turkestan Islamic Party. Now, historically, there have always been accusations of the East Turkestan Islamic Movement having um, connections to Al-Qaeda and, and other such groups. But this, this was not really the case until after 2006, when the group did begin to develop ties um, with Al-Qaeda. And especially since the conflict in Syria, where there's now a small group of Uyghur fighters who are in the north of Syria and control um, some of the territory there and they're active. However, I would emphasize that they are, some of them are refugees who fled and, and were sent there by Turkish security forces in a, in a bit to um, build up Turkish influence in the north. So there's a lot of interplay between geopolitical interests of Turkey and the Middle East. And in addition, for the security situation in Xinjiang, again, there've been very little, if any, evidence of links between coordinated terror attacks um, of Uyghur militants based in Syria with anyone based in Xinjiang. They're very distinct problem sets. And although China has um, legitimate rights to be monitoring the developments in Syria, of course, much like the West um, is focused on ISIS and other um, Islamic terror groups. The problem with China is it tends to take this very narrow view of framing everything as Uyghur terrorism, when really China faces legitimate threats from other actors, such as um, for example, the Pakistani Taliban or the Balochistani separatist groups in Pakistan who conducted a number of attacks on Chinese nationals in Pakistani territory. Belt and Road infrastructure has been attacked by terrorist organizations. None of these have been Uyghur groups. And this is where the problem is, where China is shoehorning its um, assimilationist policies within Xinjiang into this global crusade, call it what you will, um, or ironic enough, um, against an ethnic minority, and it's really not serving its nationals and promoting its its own strategic or security interests. So speaking of, of taking too narrow of a view, let's talk about this report. Uh, the Great Wall of Steel, which you've recently released, uh, is a, like I mentioned in the introduction, is available on the Wilson Center website, wilsoncenter.org slash book slash great dash wall dash steel you will find it easily um let's talk about the you know what you've found here that you know a lot of times when this as a policy issue does bubble to the surface it is often in the context of what's going on in in uh, xinjiang province 
there's uh you know i think it was about a year ago uh we had a lot of people come you know talking about the manufacture the the fabric manufa clothing manufacturers that were in that province and that and how you know uh, there should be more attention being paid in the West of how the, where their clothes are coming from and how that, that those are being made. Uh, but you're really talking about, you know, this is a much broader situation. It's not just what's going on in China itself that we need to be paying attention to. So what are you, some of your findings from this report? Yeah. So a lot of the research since 2017, um, you know, the international community has been really focused on what's happening within Xinjiang itself. The mass internment program, the de-extremification laws that were being passed, um, some of the, the repression, the forced sterilization, a lot of the um, horrifying accounts that are coming out of Xinjiang itself. My research takes a step back and actually tries to position what's happening within Xinjiang within an international context and how China has been in the situation in Xinjiang has been influencing Chinese foreign policy. My background, I, I focus on uh, post-Soviet Central Asia. That's where this uh, project itself evolved from. I was looking a lot into the geopolitical dynamics where China's had a growing presence as an economic, political and security provider within Central Asia. Um, but since 2017, there's been localized protests and backlash after um, news started coming out about Xinjiang camps. And this was particularly stark in Kazakhstan, where the movement Atajur was documenting what was happening in Xinjiang for all the um, refugees who were fleeing into Kazakhstan. And this created a lot of debate within Kazakh society about um, ethnic Kazakhs in particular who were being detained, people who had family members and relatives the difficulties of conducting cross-border trade in the new securitized environment. So I began to grow, grow like interested in the, um, the geopolitical problems that the Xinjiang crisis was causing with, for China and its immediate neighbors. Then I began delving into the subject in a lot more depth, and I, and I really began to realize very early on that this is very global in scale, China's pursuit of Uyghur dissidents and political activists. Um, South Asia, everywhere from Afghanistan to Pakistan, across Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Turkey, and even North America and Europe, where China's not using direct methods of um, partnerships of security services like it does in other regions, but it's using, especially since 2015, a lot more cyber attacks, and it's using a lot more cyber campaigns. And especially since the mass internment program, a lot of people living in the United States and people who may or may not be political activists for the Uyghur community, a lot of them now have Almost all of them have relatives who are now detained in Xinjiang. So this has given the security service a huge amount of leverage over them, threats that they use WeChat to tell them, you know, if you don't stop your activism, you know, we may have to visit your mother this weekend, you know, and that sends a very clear chilling signal to civil society. Um, and this has been global in its scale. The major findings are that which tends surprise people is that the, the Muslim world has been the most widely complicit in deporting um, Uyghurs back to China. Um, and even in countries that people wouldn't expect, where there are large Uyghur communities such as Egypt. In 2017, um, China's security services um, were displeased by the number of Uyghur students who were going to study at um, Islamic universities in Cairo. And in response, Egypt cooperated with China to detain hundreds of these Uyghurs, many of whom were deported back to China. 
Some of them who left voluntarily after calls were issued from the consulates um, demanding that they return to Xinjiang to um, you know, update their paperwork. That's usually what they're told um, for having to return. Some of them were given life sentences, and I've tracked through the data sets looking at uh, court documents in Xinjiang for people who had been studying in Egypt. And some of these have been given life imprisonment sentences. There are even two cases of students who were found dead in Chinese police custody um, after they returned. Little information was ever released about the circumstances. The government claimed that they were um, health issues, but little little more evidence has been revealed. Um, so we don't really know what, what happened to them. But this just shows the severity of the punishments that some of them face, and even just the, perhaps even the sanitary conditions in some of these detention centers when you're detaining such large numbers of people that, that health risks, um, you know, put a lot of people at risk, particularly when you're detaining the elderly, people as old as eight here in some of these re-education facilities. So uh, do we know why these uh, predominantly Muslim countries uh, within the Muslim world in the Middle East are are complicit in this way? Is there a particular reason that you found? Yeah, and of course it varies. You know, when we talk about the Muslim world, we're talking about a vast expanse um, going all the way from Europe to Southeast Asia. Very true. They all have their own unique geopolitical dynamics, and particularly because the rising China's presented so much opportunity for many of them, it's led to a lot of these difficult moral trade-offs. Um, Pakistan, probably the most clear in, in the case that this is a country that's had very deep um, military and strategic relations with China going back decades. Pakistan, Pakistani uh, military elite view themselves as being locked in a competition with India. Um, and this, this conflict really drives most of their foreign policy. And it's, you know, the Uyghurs, unfortunately, have found themselves between a rock and a hard place in Pakistan, and that the Pakistani elite wish to deepen the relations and continue gaining military equipment and access um, to security equipment with China. And this has often led to deportations of Uyghurs for political incentives. Since 2013, China's been growing as a major um, economic power, especially with the, the Belt and Road Initiative. And China's been building inroads across the Middle East in particular uh, since then, especially since the 1990s when it's become like a net oil importer. This has made countries like Saudi Arabia far more important to China. But also with Belt and Road Agreements, you've seen China deepening its economic presence in everywhere from Egypt to Morocco. And sometimes China packages in this the capabilities for repression within its economic arrangements. For example, its, it's deal with Morocco um, to deepen their trade relations, it came with a signed extradition treaty in 2016. This treaty was recently activated against an Uyghur uh, named Idris Hassan, who'd been fleeing uh, Turkey. He was a Uyghur programmer who worked with a number of human rights organizations in Turkey, raising awareness of the plight of the Uyghurs. Um, he was facing a lot of um, harassment from Turkish security services. So he fled to Morocco, where he was detained at Casablanca Airport. And he was detained because China had actually manipulated the international policing organization, Interpol, by issuing what are known as red notices. These are essentially arrest warrants um, accusing him of terrorism. Um, with no evidence, Interpol eventually revoked this order, uh, noting that no 
evidence had been presented that the claims seemed, did not match with their charter. Um, and so, although the Ed, Interpol Red Notice was removed, the Moroccan local courts uh, cited their own bilateral extradition treaty with China as grounds for detaining and preparing for his deportation. Of course, as I asked the question, I thought, well, it's kind of an obvious answer. They're they're using, uh, you know, these these initiatives with Belt and Road and some of their soft power. But it actually seems like from your answer that they're they really go hand in hand. It's not that they're using one so that they can gain access to the other, but they're really building relationships around the world uh, that are that are encompassing this very like they have an eye towards doing that as they're trying to set up these relationships it appears yeah that's definitely the case and you know this tends to be the case with most rising powers as their economic interests grow around the world as they have more of their their nationals living within territories they expand their security presence because they need to deliver more services to their their nationals especially with the belt and road protecting infrastructure You've seen a lot more private security companies, Chinese private security companies active in parts of the world, but even an expanding security footprint. So somewhere where this has been evident to go back to post-Soviet Central Asia has been the Republic of Tajikistan, which was one of the first countries I began to focus on because China has been building a number of strategic military facilities on the border with Afghanistan. This goes back to the leaked in 2019, the, the so-called Xinjiang Papers by the New York Times. Um, which noted that in 2014, Xi Jinping had made a speech in which he said that the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan would create instability on the border on Xinjiang's border, and that the, a conduit, small border that China has with Afghanistan, called the Wakhan Corridor, he specifically highlighted that as a as a potential conduit through which extremists returning from conflicts in the Middle East and Southeast Asia would infiltrate Xinjiang and destabilize it. Since then, you've seen a number of these initiatives, initiatives on the Taj Tajikistan border. So the Tajik border with the Wakhan corridor, um, China's been setting up these reconnaissance facilities, which is one of the few military bases that it really has around the world. It's, China still has a small number of them, but they will; these will grow over time. Um, but it's interesting that Central Asia has been one of the first um, to have such a facility. And it really shows the extent to which China's paying attention to the region, paying attention to the situation in, in Afghanistan in particular. And since the US withdrawal, people have been surprised that China's been building connections with the Taliban. This is actually not a recent phenomenon. This goes back to the 90s as well, when there were a number of um, small-scale Uyghur groups, such as the East Turkestan Islamic movement that we, we mentioned earlier. Um, but China has always been trying to broker deals with the Taliban in which it won't criticize them on human rights and it will try to foster economic links in exchange for their cooperation and ensuring that no Uyghurs will use their territory. This is, of course, a problematic security framing because the Taliban um, historically have manipulated the Uyghur issue as a way of gaining concessions from China. So rather than deporting Uyghurs, the Taliban would actually move them into areas where they were under uh, watch of Taliban officials. So if relations or if they ever needed more bargaining power, they would play the Uyghur militant card should they need it. And I, I don't see that situation changing anytime soon. There have been reports actually leaked from Tajikistan security services that the Taliban had been moving Uyghurs from the Wakhan corridor area um, into other parts of Afghanistan. And it's probably part of the same playbook of 
manipulating Chinese security concerns in exchange for economic and political concessions. Well, and really, your report does a lot to raise awareness among policymakers in the West about this sort of worldwide repression movement that that China has been engaging in uh, with these renditions. So aside from simply, you know, go to the Wilson Center website, read this report, uh, what what do you advise for U.S. policymakers who may be listening to this show? Uh, what what should they have their eye on on the horizon? I think for the situation of the Uyghurs, the the policy suggestion that keeps coming up in all my conversation with the Uyghur community and the Uyghur activist community is that although the the U.S. has gone a long way toward pushing uh, legislation such as the Trap Act against transnational repression, which you know just for the sake of listeners, you know China's not the only actor engaged in transnational repression. Turkey, Russia, Iran, Rwanda, many other countries and states are pursuing dissidents living overseas, including in the United States. Um, This is China's actions, though, go a stage further in the sense that, first of all, the scale is unprecedented. The database I built is by far the largest um, set of people who've been targeted by a single government. And due to the mass nature of China's program, a lot of the, while a lot of other states pursue people who are actively political or are part of opposition movements against the ruling regime, a lot of the Uyghurs are apolitical or they're just ordinary people trying to live their lives, keep a low profile, who've actually been targeted. And this has actually sometimes pushed some of them toward political activism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just as laying the groundwork there, the US is doing a lot to counteract transnational repression. There have been a number of important statements recognizing this as a threat. But specifically for the Uyghur case, I think a lot more needs to be done definitely in terms of refugee resettlement. I think we need to understand that Uyghurs are not only at threat within China's borders, but many of them in places such as Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, um, Egypt, etc. They should be able to file for refugee status because they are at threat and there have been a number of cases where many have been sent back to China and they have faced torture um, prolonged prison sentences, and some of them have even died in police custody. Well, this is the culmination of two years' worth of work for you, uh, and you should be proud. I think that uh, this is a very interesting report. Again, re- recommend it to be read by folks who were listening here. You find it on our website. Uh, we in the Congressional Relations Department of the Wilson Center actually also created uh, a sort of a one-page kind of executive summary that contains some links there's some extra resources on this. So we definitely advise folks to, to check this out. Bradley, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me and for um, discussing the report. <laughs>